Hi, I'm David Peskovitz. And I'm Mark Frauenfelder. And you're listening to For Future Reference, a podcast from the Institute for the Future. In every episode of For Future Reference, we talk with scientists and engineers whose forward-thinking research has the potential to transform our lives over the coming decade. Today on For Future Reference, we're talking with Tamsin Woolley Barker. Tamsin's an evolutionary biologist, and she's the author of a book called Teeming, How Superorganisms Work to Build Infinite Wealth in a Finite World. Tamsin's research is focused on biomimicry. Biomimicry sees nature as a source of new materials, structures, and processes, and it aims to create new kinds of technologies and organizational forms based on natural analogs. Tamsin's done some amazing research looking at how biomimicry may relate to the election and other kinds of social behaviors among human beings. Hey, Tamsin, how's it going? It's going great. Good. So, Tamsin, could you start by telling us your name and what you do? Okay. Well, uh, my name is Tamsin Willie Barker, and um, I'm trained as an evolutionary biologist. Um, I worked with, primato- uh, with primates, and, um, but especially uh, evolutionary genetics. And then I got into biomimicry, and that's really my full-time job now. So I do independent consulting um, for different companies and uh, a lot of writing and uh, research, um, speaking, and generally just innovation inspired by nature. Um, and then I, I teach at uh, Arizona State University uh, in their new biomimicry center. Um, so that's pretty much what I'm doing now. Tamson, can you tell us for, um, for, for people who may not know, you know, what, what biomimicry is? Sure. Well, it's, it's innovation inspired by nature. And so the idea is that all of the species that are around today are survivors. You know, 99% of the species that ever existed are gone today. And so what's left are really the survivors. Um, and they have strategies that are proven by time um, at over 3.8 billion years. So if we look at them, you know, we, a lot of times we come up with really surprising, transformative um, technologies that can change the way we do things. Um, and so, and, and that's not just on the technological side, but also on the social side um, uh, and, and processes and systems. Tamsin, one of the really interesting things that struck me when I was re- reading your book was that you were talking about humans as being very close genetically to apes. Yeah. But we also have a really a, another important component where humans are almost a hybrid between apes and social insects. Yeah. Hey, who are you calling an ape? <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, could you talk a little bit about that? I mean, that, that's in a way, that's kind of what differentiates humans from the, the rest of the primates. Right. Well, I mean, obviously, we, we share over 98% of our DNA with chimpanzees and bonobos. Um, so basically, we are apes, but our social system is radically different. Like, there's something radically different that changed and that, you know, I call it the 2% difference. Um, but to my mind, because, you know, I, I think the tendency has been in anthropology is to just say, well, we're smarter apes, and it's something to do with our big brains and, and that. But I really don't think that's the case. I think it's the difference in social system. Um, and really, you see a convergence in... Um, you know, these ants 
uh, colonies, termite colonies, honeybee hives. Those to me are uh, more informative. So you know, it to me it's a it's a, a change in the social system. So it's interesting, you know. I mean, the most of what I've heard about biomimicry and read about over the years has been looking at. Um, examples in nature to inspire engineering innovations, like looking at the way a, a, a gecko can climb a wall and, and trying to apply that to robotics or new kinds of adhesives, um, things like that. But 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 you're looking at um, you know the, the social side of things, which I think it's almost more difficult to to see those links, at least for people from the outside. Yeah, you know, I mean, I do a lot of that kind of uh, technology consulting with companies. Um, but what I found over time um, is that, you know, they can be, they can get really excited about these ideas, but unless they have an organizational structure that, you know, is conducive to changing, there's, it, these things don't go anywhere. And so when you look, you know, my, my background in climatology is really looking at social systems and how they evolve, and you can really see how change different kinds of systems um, promote change, and, and change can accelerate. And, and our hierarchical kind of systems are exactly what you use to stop change. And so, you know, it's, I, and that's really where my research has always been in that area, but it's really been a frustration of seeing great ideas that all kinds of people have just getting stopped in their tracks by the structures that we have. Um, and that's not how these other societies do it. And there's societies that have lasted, you know, 150 million years for the ants or um, 10 or 50 million years for termites. And, you know, and I get really into the uh, fungal networks underground, which are half a billion years old. Um, and, I, and so, you know, these things have already been solved. It's just, it's just you just have to look for them. Right. So one of the things that I, I found really interesting is how you, you show how we can apply animal behavior to to what people do. So talk a little bit about what we can learn from honeybees as it applies to the spreading of fake news. <laughs> Jumping right in there, Mark. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, you know, there's a great book. Thomas Steely wrote this whole book on, he's a biologist, on um, honeybee democracy. And, um, you know, looking, so they, they have this system, you know, they have to find a new home every now and then. But it's, you know, matter of life and death. Like they can't, they can't make the wrong decision. And the way they do it is not by consensus or peer pressure or you know the ways that we do it. What they do is they maintain the the, the basis of it is diversity and independence. So they send out all these scouts, and they all go and find these sites that that are good. But nobody ever votes for a site they haven't seen themselves. There's, there's no hearsay in it. And so, you know, maybe each bee goes to only visit one site, and then they dance for it. And then the dance tells the other bees exactly where it is and how good it is. And, but they are basically trying to convince other bees to go see for themselves. They don't convince other bees to just vote for it without seeing it. So they just, there really is no kind of fake news process in there. Um, and, you know, you can kind of see that if any of these species ever did do that, they're extinct now. Wow. Right. I will say, I think that with the ants, it's really interesting because there's so many, you know, they use pheromones um, to sort of say, are you are you part of us? Or are you with another colony? 
Um, and a lot of species like spiders and other parasites have learned to um, copy the pheromones. And so they, that is kind of like a fake news where they're trying to infiltrate. You know, it's a parasitic infiltration. And that, I think that's really what we're dealing with, right? Um, and so it's super interesting to go and look at what are the techniques that ants use to prevent that and to find that and to stop it. Uh, I think there's a lot there. So how, how would you apply some of those learnings to, you know, the real world, um, you know, scaling way up? Right. Well, I mean, I think that um, something like Facebook is ripe for it. You know, here we are, we, we read these things that, um, you know, a lot of people share the posts because they know it is um, in line with their moral values, right, their, their identity. And so it becomes um, almost the pheromone of your identity more than the content itself. And so it, and it's, a, it's a network. And you're, you're not, you're, re, you're repeating it. You're, you're uh, amplifying the signal. But we, we don't have any way to. There's uh, a decay of the signal. You know, in, in um, with the ants, the pheromone eventually evaporates. So you're not going to get these, you know, stories from 10 years ago resurfacing. And um, they, they do. If, if it's not a good signal, it decays. We don't have that. Um, but those are things that are easy to implement. I think. Um, I I think Facebook should have a lot of biological um, mimicry within it. That, that's what I was going to ask. Let, let's imagine that Facebook has hired you to kind of change the the uh, response buttons or something. W- what would you d- suggest Facebook do to help prevent spreading of fake news? Oh, that's a good question. Well, I think one thing would be a a really prominent way to say what is the source of this. Who who. Who's, where's this coming from? So then you you know you know is who's who's giving me this? Who's feeding me this? Is it a parasite? Is it just someone that shares my identity? Um, and then you need to have some kind of distributed way of saying whether well, is it true or not? Is it verified? Is the signal good? Um, and that could just be a distributed um, function. I don't think those things would be too hard to implement. Um, and then the other things. You know, in an ant uh, colony, if there's some infection, if, if a parasite does get in, they shut those parts down pretty quickly. They quarantine them, and they have, like, some systems that just come up again and again, and, and, and all of them are easy to implement. Do you have a favorite, uh, uh, you know, bit of, of wisdom from, from the animal world, um, the social life of animals that, that you know, surprised you or, or you think would be most transformative if, if we could apply it, you know, in human situations? I can tell you my favorite organism is the, are these, um, the mycorrhizal fungi underground. And so these are, um, you know, they fruit and they're the mushrooms. They're basically mushrooms. They're super familiar to us. But they spore out and they're all genetically distinct individuals, just like we are. And, but they are driven to find each other. So they grow and they they find each other and they make these networks and it's just like what we do. But the way that they survive is that they have these flat networks. It's not a hierarchy, and they're searching for these really small diffuse molecules of water and nutrients throughout the soil, and they gather them and they trade them with the trees um, for sugar fuel. And but meanwhile, they also 
transport um, signals for the plant. So if an insect chews on a leaf over here, the fungus will actually, it serves as an internet for the trees. So it'll take that signal over to other plants and say, hey, there's an insect infestation over here. You better start making um, some compounds to fight that. And so it's the, this idea of these individuals coming together to this network and contributing their tiny little specks of value and supporting a whole ecosystem that supports all of us with it. And the whole thing is really run on sunlight. And CO2, I mean, the plants make all that sugar with CO2. And like, why can't we do that? I don't see why not. But to me, it's really inspiring because it's a society that is proven. You know, it's 500 million years old. And it seems like we're converging on it. You know, this all seems like reasonably doable. Oh, so, you, so, so when you say we're converging on it, that means you're optimistic about us as, as a society? I, you know, I really am. I mean, this this past month has been a little trying sometimes, <laughs> but I it makes me it gives me a lot of hope because you know I see like if you go for a walk, you know, out on the trail, everything you see is a is a survivor. Ninety nine point nine percent of the species that ever existed are gone, and so every single thing you know, living thing is a survivor, and their solutions work. So I know all the answers are there. It's really just. You know, how are we going to look for them and use them? You know, and we have this, um, you know, idea that we need to keep growing all the time. And then, you know, they, I know you probably know that quote of like, only madmen and economists believe in infinite growth on a finite planet, um, which seems logical. But there are species, societies that are doing it all the time, but they, they do it by growing the density of their networks through you know, trust and transparency and sunlight and CO2 and things that are virtually infinite. You know, they're not um, doing it with these hierarchies, which are fixed. You know, you can only build so high before it falls over. Um, so to me, it seems like a few tipping points. You know, as they say that only, you only need 11% of the people to change their behavior um, and the beliefs for the whole system to flip. So to me, it's very doable. You know, I feel like we're on the edge of this kind of chaotic interface where things could go either way without, you know, surprise us. We can be surprised. In your book, Teaming, you you write about uh, kind of like five traits of successful superorganisms and how how we we can apply them to kind of what we do as people. And I thought it would be interesting to kind of take a look at a couple of these. One of them is cultivating a collective intelligence. Could you talk about what, what's involved with that? Is that what the fungi do? Yeah, and, I mean, the, and the ants and the, and the bees, they all do that. And, and it's really, it's, so what, the idea behind collective intelligence is that if you have enough diverse and independent opinions, it can't, all the errors cancel out, and you end up with something that's very close to accurate. You know, and, and something like a Hewlett-Packard, they use that in their decision-making. Um, and even like betting markets and um, the stock market, things like that, you know, we, they, it, it works pretty well um, as long as you can preserve diversity and independence. And so these other superorganism societies, they spend a lot of effort, you know, um, insisting on diversity and independence. And humans are, you know, mixed bag on that because we have a strong herd mentality because of our ape heritage is, you know, we respond to dominance. 
Um, and a lot of times we want to conform or, um, you know, we, we're just susceptible because of our heritage. And so I think that's, you know, something to be really aware of. Um, but, yeah, the collective intelligence um, is the key to the, to the whole, to a lot of this. Um, and it's really just, just preserving our diversity, like keeping as many opinions as you can and different experiences, different kinds of people um, and different kinds of strategies, and then keeping them independent so that they get equal weight and equal hearing. One of the things that appeals to me about the distributed intelligence idea is that um, blundering and mistakes are kind of a positive thing because you're doing a lot of experimenting. Most of the, the experiments and things you try fail, but once in a while they work. And then those those kinds of things, uh, you know, if you do that hundreds of thousands of times or millions of times, that's when you see progress happening. Yeah, I, I call that uh, swarm creativity. And just this idea, you know, these species that, that uh, take advantage of opportunities, species that are really good at um, responding to change quickly, that they, they do that, they, you know, they put out a lot of different possibilities. They don't invest too many, too much in any of them. And then something's lucky. Then you 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 double down on that one. You know, you 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 enhance what works. And so, and that's really how natural selection works, right? It's whatever's successful makes more. Um, and so, I I think that's a really good strategy for companies um, and for change in general. And and so. Uh, the stage after swarm creativity that you uh, write about in your book is distributed leadership. Can you explain what that means? Yeah. So, you know, we have this notion in these insect societies of this queen bee or, you know, the queen ant running running the colony. Um, but that's actually not the case at all. Um, what she's really doing is amplifying signals um, and feeding them back. She's a part of the feedback loop, and she also does all the reproduction. So she's, at the end, kind of the most important piece of making more for the future, but she doesn't do any kind of command and control. And so, you know, when you then when you look more generally at the colony, you find that leadership is really distributed um, in a much broader sense. I mean, with the honeybees, you've got all these different scouts going out collecting information. Um, and voting on it, so it's really distributed. But what I found was really interesting in the ants, they work in these teams of three, like these triple-unit teams, and one of them is a leader, what you call a leader, and the other two are specialists. So what this leader does is mostly gathering diversity and uh, looking, uh, just sort of moving information from one team to the next so that everyone is to, to build a bigger picture. So they're they're looking for local details, but they're sharing them in a sense that builds a bigger picture, um, and and it requires this distributed leadership. Um, and we don't really have that. We have these notions of leadership as being um, one person with a genius vision and driving it down to the organization. Um, but but actually, it's a really poor way to respond to change. And, and so the the name actually like a queen bee or the queen of an ant colony that's kind of a misnomer. They they aren't really in control of of anything, or they're not. They're not telling the other ants what to do. That's right. Yeah, I mean, what what they're doing is so the the, the workers come back and they 
give them signals that, you know, hey, we need to make more workers, we need to make more foragers, we need to make more nursery workers. Um, and that's what she's responding to. Um, and, but, but she does have one really important leadership role, and that is the gathering of diversity in the first place. Right. Because they, they do these neutral flight, flights where they go out and they have to mate with as many males as they can. Um, and if they're not, if they don't find enough mates, they don't have enough diversity to have a healthy colony. And so another uh, trait of a superorganism, I think, is one that probably comes into conflict a lot with, with the, the ape part of human nature, and that is uh, dependence on reciprocity and sharing. Well, so our ape ancestors really struggle with that one. And they, you know, they're very social. They depend on friendships and all that, alliances. But they really don't, and, they, and reciprocity is important. You know, I help you in an alliance, and you help me. Um, but we've taken it to a whole nother level. And part of the reason for that is that we can speak. So we share reputation on each other. We say, how likely was that person to reciprocate? Um, there's this great story that um, Jane Goodall, um, there was a, a mother-daughter group, a, a pair, and the, they were going into the forest and following other mothers with new babies um, and stealing the babies and eating them. It was really horrifying. And the, the mothers would go to the alpha male and they'd get really upset and try to convey that this pair was up to something really bad, but the alpha males never got it because they couldn't, they couldn't say what they'd been doing. But, you know, for us, we keep these like running dossiers on each other of how likely we are to help each other um, and return the favor. And so I think that reputation thing um, takes it to a whole nother level for us. Um, and, and that's, that's what allows us to do, to be really reciprocal and to really expand um, the, the teams that we work in. Right. And I've, I've read before that uh, one of the reasons that humans evolved the, the ability to, to speak and have language is to, uh, to gossip yeah. and kind of point out the, the uh, bad actors and the, the, the parasites in, in, a, uh, in a group. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's interesting, you know, I think historically in our past, we would choose who we work with. Um, and, well, we lived in small groups, too. But, we, you know, you definitely, it catches up with you. You know, if you're not a good reciprocator, it, people are less likely to, to help you out. But now, you know, we work in these global companies. You don't, not only do you not know who your coworkers or people that you want to work with, what their histories are necessarily, um, but you don't always have a choice on who, if you can work with them or not. You know, you can't just say, okay, I'm going to leave this team and go work with people that are proven cooperators. But I think if we could implement those things, you know, it, that's the advantage of the self-management kind of model where, you know, you have more choice over that. And, the, and those, they've shown that those cooperative um, loci just expand, and those groups do better. And so if we could implement some of those things, I think you could – you could leverage that. If only we could uh, ask the bees and the ants how they do it. Yeah, <laughs> exactly, exactly. What are you working on now? Is there any new research or, or, or new ideas that you're exploring? Yeah, well, okay, so I just, you know, I just wrote this book, um, Teaming, and so that's really oriented towards these organizations and how we can structure it better. 
um, so that they can respond to change more quickly. Um, and I think a big exciting part of that is the regenerative value, too, of like how are we going to convert to using unlimited things like sunlight and, and building with CO2 um, like the plants do and building trust and transparency and flattening our networks. Those are all things that we can make more of. Um, and those are exciting. Um, but um, so I'm really sort of reaching out from that. Um, I mean, I have a lot of things that I want to know more about. You know, I'm I'm pretty excited about this tipping point idea of if 11% of the people adopt a behavior or belief that the whole system can easily change. Um, I mean, we just saw that, right? Like only maybe 20, 25% of Americans actually voted um, for Trump, but it flipped the system on a dime. And I think, you know, we're, we're at the edge of that chaotic interface where things can flip, um, which is, is exciting, a little scary too, but um, I think we can, we can use it to make things better. Um, and uh, I'm really interested in self-deception right now, like how we, you know, we need to feel like good people, um, moral people, and I, and I believe that most people um, are. And but but they deceive themselves um, in different ways, and and there's a whole literature on that 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 I think is you know it's based on evolutionary theory that's really interesting. So that's kind of where I'm going now. Amazing. Well, I mean, I I think that you know that that the kind of work you're doing um, can give us hope as long as we remember that that you know the answers to many of these problems are out there and they've been tested over millions of years. Yeah, it's super exciting to me, and and you know, I mean, it's, I without hope we have nothing, right? But it's just that all of these answers are right in front of us if we if we really look, um, and if we structure society to implement them. You know, I think it's doable, and it and it's hard to find hopeful um, systems. Like it's hard to find hope sometimes, um, but I think I think this biomimicry really does it because you you know it's doable because it's being done already, and you just have to figure out how. Amazing. You have a very fun job, Tamson. I love my job. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't even seem like work, I'm sure. Thanks so much for, for talking with us today. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Tamson. You know, the, the thing that struck me the most, I think, was, was Tamson's talk about people as ant-like humans. That, like, kind of like turned a light bulb on in my head about human behavior. Yeah, I think that's really interesting because, you know, a lot of times it's easier to think about humans um, and comparing them to, you know, other kinds of primates, right? Right. Like you and I, I know we're both huge fans of Desmond Morris's The Naked Ape, and it's like it's kind of like my manual for like human behavior, but really it's more than that. Yeah, it's 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 interesting to really think about us as insects yeah. as as well. Yeah, I, I think, um, and one of the things that I, I didn't ask was, insects, of course, are much more specialized, and humans are generalized. So there's that tension there, like. Could people really become a superorganism, or are we? Do we have too much of the uh, kind of, you know, not wanting to fit a rigid role? Right. Do we have too much independence? Right. Some people may think that we think too independently um, for their taste, but you know, I I do think that that um, you know it, it's interesting to think about these these systems among insects and, and societies among insects and and 
other animals, not just as, you know, a metaphor, but really have, um, uh, uh, you know, approaches and systems that, that and, and lessons that really can be applied um, to positive end um, among human beings. Right, yeah. And the fact is that these are strategies that have evolved over millions of years, and they work. And so, you know, as humans, we have the capacity to kind of like leapfrog by, by observing and applying those, those things ourselves. We sh- really should be paying a closer look at the way nature solves problems. Yeah, I think one of the challenges, though, in this kind of work, especially when you're talking about, you know, human behavior and not just, you know, can learning about geckos help us make better robots, um, the challenge is that I-, I don't think most people really feel like they want to be identified or, or compared to, um, you know, ants or bees or, or you know, even gorillas or bonobos for that right. example. Yeah, <laughs> you know. exactly. And that's like that Robert Heinlein quote that ends with something like specialization is for insects. <laughs> yeah, we like to think that we're so much smarter than the other uh, uh, animals that we, we share the planet with, or mushrooms for, the, for that matter. <laughs> right. Thanks for listening to For Future Reference. I'm David Peskovitz. And I'm Mark Frauenfelder. For more information about Institute for the Future and to subscribe to the For Future Reference podcast, visit iftf.org. For Future Reference is underwritten by a grant from the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation with production support from Parker Yesko and BMP Audio. Greg Fleischett composed the music.